Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today, I'm joined by Professor Sally Eaves, who's been called the torchbearer for ethical tech. Sally is a practicing professor of fintech, a former chief technology officer, and CEO and founder of Aspirational Futures. She was also an inaugural recipient of the Frontier Technology and Social Impact Award, presented at the United Nations in 2018. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Sally. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Really looking forward to talking to you. So, Sally, you are the CEO of Aspirational Futures. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about the organization and what your goals are. Absolutely, with great pleasure. So Aspirational Futures has come about from kind of 10 years, really, of applied projects over three main pillars. So one is emergent technology and also repurposing older technology too. The second is learning, holistic learning for life. It's all around STEAM skills. And the third is around impact. So we like to learn through impact projects really applied in the local community, but with global scale as well. So that's the three areas that really unite what we do. And it's all about democratizing access to opportunities making something that everybody can benefit from, right from primary school age, all the way up to some of our oldest kind of participants are in their 90s, actually. So it really is lifelong learning um, in action. This is a really interesting concept that you bring with respect to this idea of lifelong learning. And one of the key phrases that is in your literature that really stuck with me was this idea of building, building talent in careers that have yet to be conceived. I found that very powerful. Um, and I was doing some research. In, in 2017, there was a, um, a an article that was published by Dell, Dell Technologies that said that 85% of the jobs that will exist in two, 2030 haven't been created yet. And so I was wondering about that. How do you enable – How is what's your thinking process around enabling uh, students for lifelong learning in, in jobs that don't exist yet? I think when we look ahead, we look at need to look at two things. One, skills that will grow with you. And one of those is actually understanding how we learn. So understanding things more about metacognition, for example, because if we understand how we learn, what works for us, we can apply that to what we do and actually learn better, learn smarter, and also feel more comfortable with change. I think if we think about you know what's happened over the last few months, no one could have anticipated that. And I think one of the key skills to come out of that is resilience compassion, problem solving, all these types of skills, skills that make us human alongside the technology skills to which to deliver big change that lasts. So for me, it's the holistic skills for life, absolutely essential. And then to a certain extent, you know, whatever jobs come along in 2030, 2040, 2050, we have that skill set that's growing with us all the time. And you have a very interesting add to our traditional ask for STEM careers and STEM learning. We've had a lot of people that have talked to us about the importance of mathematics and such, but you have really advocated a change from STEM thinking to STEAM thinking. So tell us about what that A is all about. Absolutely. And that's arts in its widest sense. So everything from you know, from sport, I would consider within that, but traditional arts and music, some things that I believe are actually being squeezed out of the curriculums in many countries across the world at the moment. And we desperately need those. They should be on an equal stage. STEM is massively important. There's been a great focus on that for probably the last 10 years. And that's been vital. But I think there's been maybe an unintended consequence in the fact there's been so much focus on STEM. Some of the arts areas have been, have been pushed out. And 
been a little bit left behind. And I think that's a real shame. You know, I don't want there to be a lost generation to the arts. Creativity matters. We need that curiosity, that creative confidence to be able to build for the future. You know, with all the tech skills in the world, obviously vital, but we need to be able to imagine what we want that future to look like. And to do that, you need to have that creative confidence, the compassion, emotional intelligence. A lot of those skills are built through things that help us to express ourselves. I think the arts are vital for that. I like this point that you're bringing up around vision, that uh, there's a certain amount of creativity and imagination that's required to really envision the technological future that we all want. Um, but there's also some more mundane things, even in the day-to-day -day world. I have found that many people who are classically trained, for instance, in data science, know how to execute a specific kind of uh, method. They know how to uh, read and express a certain kind of algorithm but they don't always come with the creativity to understand how to apply things in different kinds of ways, whether what they're actually looking at is meaningful. Or, um, and so this idea of trying to create a more well-rounded person seems really attractive, uh, someone that can be a little bit more independent um, and think a little bit more about business and social outcomes as opposed to math and technology in a vacuum. We we tend to, to speak in charts and numbers, and that doesn't really pull at the heartstrings very much, does it? And I suspect that some of the artistic teaching that you're that you're talking about really helps people to connect not just numbers, but to connect as humans. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when we look at the skills in the future, a lot of this is all about human and technology in partnership. I almost think we need a fluency between these different types of skills. We need to be able to adjust and adapt and grow. So I've been reading some of your work, and it's important for you to have people who are able to convey a story. But even more important sometimes is that that story be something that conveys this idea of tech for good. How do we start to envision a future where technology is actually improving our lives and improving the the different things that the different avenues of our of our respective um, experiences? And uh, we at Click have a whole uh, organization called Click.org that supports um, our world around us. And I think that this is a hot topic for many companies. So what 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 can you tell us a little bit about who's doing tech for good in a way that is repeatable or as a model for uh, for others moving forward? Yeah, I think, first of all, just thinking about what tech for good, you know, actually, actually means. Um, I think, you know, tech is a, a duality. It's all about how we applied it and the purpose behind the tech is, is, is you know, whether it's applied for good or, 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 for, or for bad intent. And, and for me, tech for good is about not just thinking about what's good for you as an individual. It's all about that collective. It's democratizing access to opportunity. It's all about application and it's all about sustainable scale. And I think, you know, in recent, in recent months, one example of this in action, and I think really interesting one thinking about the tech sector as a whole you know how often do we think about tech companies you know, working on on their own agenda and it's about you know competitive advantage for example over the the pandemic experience we've seen things come up like the the hpc consortium so the high performance computing consortium 11 of the biggest tech companies in the world all coming together and giving their you know their computing power their capacity and partnering up with different educational organizations research institutes universities 
and giving access to that for free for the long term to help things scale in terms of looking at vaccine development, you know, mining those data, the power behind that. We've done things in a matter of weeks that would normally take, say, 18 months as a direct comparison. And that really shows the power of community, the power of collective, you know, that ethos of collaboration over competition. And I think that's really hands on, you know, not just talking about tech for good. That's a real example of it in action and at scale. And I really, really hope that can be one legacy, actually, over, over you know, what's been happening over the, over the last few months. Let's make this a contagion of change about how we do things differently and where we can. Let's collaborate. Let's bring people together and use what we've got, pull that and make a difference in the world. I really believe that. So I think one of the things we need to look at is right from the start, you know, who are we hiring in to, to our organisation and how do we make the judgment on who we want to be part of that? We have to ensure that process is ethical and that we're valuing bringing in a diversity of experience into our organisation. For me, that diversity of experience is vital. You know, all the research shows that teams that have a diversity of perspectives within them are more creative. They catalyse more innovation. There's better productivity. People are more satisfied and we reduce reduce risk for implicit bias along the way as well. You know, bias has been talked about a lot recently and there are examples of this being quite explicit. Um, and quite a lot of the examples are, are, are caused by the data that AI is trained on. You know, so it's garbage in, garbage out. If we're not training AI on data sets that are inclusive, that don't have those values baked in, all we're going to do is repeat or if not increase the problem. You know, and we need to look at how, how data is being applied. Sometimes this is the most sensitive areas, you know, whether that's, you know, being successful and applying for a loan or whether you get a, a place at university, as I was describing earlier on, they're decisions that can really matter. If we can't explain that to someone, why a decision has, has taken place within 30 seconds, we have a big problem and we need to be able to show the criteria that that decision has been made on too. So explainability and transparency in AI is vital. And the way to get there is to have, you know, these value statements embedded in everything we do in an organisation. For me, it's technology, culture and trust. They all go hand in hand and have ongoing education around this as well. So you've touched on something that's that's interesting with respect to the team that's building the analytic and the diversity of their experience can, that can help alert people to something that doesn't feel quite right. Have you seen any successful organizational structures in place that help to define the, the kind of the soul, if you will, of the company's values? Is that a role that lives with the with the HR organization, with the chief data officer, with the legal and compliance organization? So this is something that's new. What what models have you seen that have been effective at conveying what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior in the analytics space? I have seen a few organizations bringing in a tree, chief trust officer, actually, mm. which has taken that over overall kind of authority role around this but it has to be something that runs through from every le every level it has to be the lifeblood you know I, I talked about dna earlier this has to be part of the dna of an organization I, I really do believe that very strongly and again for me it's also thinking about business models differently i often talk about you know technology being harnessed for digital transformation but we can do that for society at the same time it's building this shared value approach to what we do and then as part of that ethics, values, culture, it's, it's all coming together and it comes together quite naturally if you change the way you think about what you're doing. That's terrific. And I totally agree that what's happened as a result of the pandemic is much different behavior around collaboration. And I think part of what you're talking about is what we choose to work on. What do we direct our efforts on? You're also 
uh, an expert in some other tat, uh, in some other parts of this, which is how do we work on that? How do we deliver things in an ethical kind of way? So you have been doing a lot of work with respect to ethical technology, ethical analytics. What can you tell us about what's going on in that area right now? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things, again, that's changed there recently is the growing awareness um, you know, we've seen quite a few things happening in various different countries at the moment where, where incidents of where things have gone wrong, should we say, have really, really come to the fore. And that awareness is, is, is critical. I always say that awareness, education and technology, they go hand in hand. And I think what we're going to see into the future is it's not just about, you know, individual people, individual organisations and even industries taking responsibility, you know, being far more transparent about what's, what data is being used for. But I also think people are demanding change as well because there is that growing awareness awareness of the value in data and how it can be applied and you know who owns that how do we protect it how do we look at better privacy and security protections so i think we've got multiple you know almost a tipping point really a different factors coming to play over, over the last few months um so there has to be change i think one one thing that's very concrete we've seen a few examples of industries coming to the fore and putting together for example value frameworks so how do we build ai ethically what are the values we should sign up for as an organization but also as an industry sector i think that's important important it's not just about legislation and we're seeing a lot of talk about that later it's all about self-governance as well it's about doing the right thing and having that responsibility and sharing that and i also think it's about transparency when things do go wrong as well as you've probably heard there's been a big issue with a-level results mm -hmm. and algorithms have been used as part of the results generation process and it's thrown up some unexpected results and, and again depending on what perspective you come from a few of us myself concluded a kind of raise that we were concerned about where this was going so your result wasn't just calculated on your past performance it was your school's past performance and that threw up you know did things about different cities different schools disadvantaged backgrounds so we're talking about very sensitive data you know, anything around education, your future career, your health. These are decisions for, for life, potentially, in terms of their implications. So we have to be so careful. We need to be transparent. You know, if we can't explain to people where that result has come from and do so transparently and quickly, we have a real, real problem. And I think that's a mantra for everything we're doing with AI development. We need to have explainability and transparency built in. And if it does go wrong, we need to react to that incredibly quickly and fairly and involve all the right players in that right from the beginning. And again, you know, this was an unprecedented year, so it's it's, you know, it's easy to criticise sometimes, isn't it? And I, I don't want to I don't want to do that, you know, and as a panacea because it's been an incredibly difficult year. And so I think everybody understands that we're playing with situations nobody would have anticipated and, and they're difficult to deal with. But what you do have to do is is take the time to think about the potential unintended consequences in advance. And there was a, there was a build up to these A-level results coming out. I think more should have been done in that process. And certainly once it did go wrong, the reaction needs to be far quicker. There was a story that was published about an 18-year-old uh, that published a short story about this kind of dystopian a-level uh, of effect, and it literally came true. So she, her A-levels were knocked down from A to B, and it was it's getting a lot of notoriety. And uh, that's the last thing you, you want, right, is to be on the wrong side of these stories as they get into the news. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's all about trust. That, that's the thing here as well. You know, it's um, there's some research that came out. It's benchmark research, really. Endelman Group published this every year, and we've got at least 17 years worth of data now. And heading into 2020, we were at pretty much a 17-year global low. And it doesn't really matter if you're talking about charity or financial services or, or government. It was affecting pretty much every every single sector. So if you have something like that, obviously that's that's a big thing that stays with people and it knocks 
back trust in technology and, and trust in you know who's who's delivering that and, and policy making all sorts of different stakeholders are affected by this and it's so so important to embed trust in all we do and so that's why i say again you know, if something does go wrong people can accept that particularly in exceptional circumstances like everything that's happening this year but you have to be able to to put your hands up and, and address that and address that quickly Let's talk about that trust a little bit. So one of the things that you're highlighting here is that transparency certainly is a positive thing for the creation of trust. Uh, But we are living in an era where there's fake news and social media things that come out that are not necessarily accurate. Um, What are we doing right and what are we doing wrong in terms of reestablishing some of our corporate and political trust? And what recommendations would you have for institutions for trying to build up that trust that is seems to have sunk so low. Yeah, I I think there's there's various aspects to this. So one of them would definitely be around communication. You know, I think traditionally, you know, media headlines have always been, they tend to go for the negative, don't they, if you know what I mean. So when it comes to technology, again, there's a tendency to to always publish the the aspects that have gone wrong, where, for example, the HPC consortium that I was talking about earlier on, incredible results, incredible delivery, and really, really tangible, and has got far less attention vis-a-vis other examples. So I think we need to consider which stories we're, we're sharing. We need to work together to change the narrative. There needs to be that balance, basically, in terms of where we do see things going wrong yes we need to make people aware of that and we need to act to make a difference but we also need to address the balance as well you know technology has been the, the amazing conduit, the connector over recent months as never beforehand so we can see that the difference it can make as well so for me it's all about balance it's about that communicating in the right way sharing some of the positive examples of tech for good in application and some of the role models behind that as well making that visible you know encouraging people to get into tech as a career i think is massively important so much of that is embedded in culture it shouldn't just be tech companies talking about this it should be ngos it should be people from universities and research communities government and local councils we need to have that kind of cross fertilization of ideas different voices coming to the table because again trust is all about feeling that you're informed and you can make your own informed decisions but it's also feeling you've got a voice in that conversation in the first place you know and you feel that that technology can matter to me and my voice is being heard i've got a way to channel my opinion so for me communication in all its senses is is vital and voice has a massive part to play in that and in some respects this comes back to your steam thinking right because the development of critical thinking skills from a scientific method with the ability to apply those things and develop the the language that can communicate those things is really what can make that connection take place. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, and again, coming back to language, uh, you know, technology particularly, there's, there's a lot of terms going about, isn't there? There's, there's a lot of, lot of jargon. And that can be a barrier in itself. If people look at something and think, you know, first paragraph, I don't understand what half those terms are. It can turn people off before you've even started. Not sitting behind words, you know, all, all the time, trying to really make things accessible, give real world examples so you can see how it's relevant to you as, as a person, to your family, in the home or your work or for the future as well. That, that real world world visibility, I think, matters hugely. And and being careful about language matters too. Well, let's talk about one of those buzzwords, um, blockchain. You are one of the world's foremost experts on the application of blockchain. So let's talk a little bit about that. What, uh, What do you think would be interesting use cases for blockchain that would be accelerating our way through the current COVID crisis? 
So multiple areas. So firstly, you know, I think we've all seen over, over what's happened. If we could have had earlier detection around the, the epidemic and earlier reaction to things, that would have made a huge, huge difference. And also things around, for example, fast tracking of drug trials. I think, again, blockchain would give people more confidence in terms of sharing their data. That's massively important because with any technology, is, is you know, adoption is key. And if people haven't got the trust to use that and are concerned that their data might be used in different ways post-pandemic, they're not going to sign up to using it and you'll have workarounds and people just won't be joining that particular app. So I think it would make a huge difference in embedding trust in the system and that the data you give will just be used for notifications about you know people in your area who have developed symptoms and then you go into, into isolation yourself, but it won't then be used later on down the line for some other purpose. I think that's a key, key aspect where it would have made a difference. Um, and certainly now and into the future, things around securing medical supply chains. You know, with vaccine development, we need to make sure that we can prove uh, right all the way through it's going where it should be going. It hasn't been interfered with. There's been no tampering. And it is actually the drug that you intended to do. I think, the, you know, the pharmaceutical industry has been one that's had quite a lot of issues, particularly in certain countries where drugs you're thinking you're getting are actually not. Um, so there's been huge problems on that. Blockchain can prevent that. It's, it's huge. I mean, supply chain and blockchain are almost like a marriage opportunity from a technology point of view. They're a really good, perfect fit. And you have another example I think I've read you talk about, about the uh, lack of identity documentation for um, a billion and a half people, maybe, and uh, also the lack of banking accounts and the challenges that that provides, presents as well. So we've done quite a few things. So I've been involved in a few startups in Africa. Um, MPES is probably the most well-known one of those that uses phones um, effectively to, to help people do their banking if they can't go to traditional banks. You know, we've got certain countries where cash is still king in any case. Um, but one example as well, using AI and again, being quite pragmatic, AI works really well with unstructured data. It's fantastic at that. So what we did with a farming population um, was look at you know who they were talking to, who they were doing business with, and could we use those SMS transactions on their phone to effectively prove creditworthiness? And we did that. And so it meant that you know rather than be refused for loans because you've got no way to prove your credit history, we could actually show something and say, well, hang on a minute. Over the last year, they've been doing this. They've been paying on time. They're receiving this income. And we did it from converting this SMS text message data. So again, just thinking a little bit differently and using technology with something, you know, something high tech and low tech effectively. And we proved it can work. So there's so many different examples of like that. And it's huge, the potential. And it's all about, again, companies coming together, being pragmatic and, and then not just you know, having a pilot and proving it and then scaling it. So Sally, how can our listeners find out more about Aspirational Futures and about more of your work? I do loads on social media. And again, that was all about community building. So I'm on Twitter, I'm at Sally Eves and most social channels on that handle too, obviously on LinkedIn. And then we've got a new brand new website for Aspirational Futures, which is aspirationalfutures.com. And also some of these stories early next year, there's the new Tech for Good book as well, which is all for charity. So feel free to, to if you want to find out more about that or even get involved, do give me a shout. Well, Sally, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. This has been a tremendous pleasure, and uh, we've learned a lot about uh, the application of technology and uh, the importance of an educational system that can drive creativity to create it. So I'd like to thank you very much for being here. My pleasure. Absolutely. I've really enjoyed it. The, the time is wisdom. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. Thank you, Sally Eves. You truly are a torchbearer for ethical AI. Thank you for helping us to see how to deploy technology for good 
how to reuse the technology that we might have decided to throw away a long time ago, and how to create ethical structures to drive everything that we do in our personal, political, and business lives.